this is Rational Radio, but uh, it's still COVID-19 time for South Africa. Today we're going to be talking on the formal economy, the informal economy, and an incredible story of the Croniers from China who've had yet another strange occurrence uh, on their arrival back to South Africa. But uh, first up, David Shapiro is with us. Uh, David, you've been watching the markets? I have. And the we markets are? <laughs> I see Sassel. <laughs> we, we're looking quite clever in our portfolio because we bought Sassel in our business portfolio in the 20s. And I see it's got up to 40 now, which is quite nice. But we'll talk lots about that. And also um, with us in the virtual studio is Gigi Alcock. Gigi? Hi. Nice to have you both here today. Uh, the one talking about the formal economy, the other one about the informal economy. But I suppose for you, Gigi, lockdown is uh, is probably more difficult than the rest of us. Well, there's not a lot of virtual um, meeting rooms on uh, the Gassi streets. <laughs> so, yes. Yeah. How are you connecting with people? Uh, you know, WhatsApp is fairly ubiquitous in the township space. Um, so lots of, uh, face, uh, of, of WhatsApp um, kind of uh, meetings and uh, interviews over WhatsApp are quite interesting when you're normally sitting on a sidewalk, you know, so, but, but it works and uh, people are very connected. Interesting. David, let's uh, start off with the markets. I see that today you could have made a lot of money if you bought mm. some gold shares or something like Transaction mm. Capital and, and Sassel, which mm. keeps going up another 6.5% today. So what's your take? Dramatic, right? Well, global markets are up, and Alec, what's driving markets up is that the news and the narrative is starting to turn positive. Or let's put it this way, less negative is a better way of, of, of saying it. Um, there's still deep concerns in the market, but um, at least uh, we, you know, we're hearing stories that infection rates are peaking in Europe or certain parts of Europe. They expect infection rates to start peaking even in the U.S., uh, less deaths, or let, let's put it this way, the, the rate of deaths is not increasing. So that flattening of the curve, I do, and, and it's too early to call an end to it, but the flattening is giving a little bit of encouragement to markets. So already we're starting to look beyond, you know, look beyond the COVID-19 and start positioning ourselves there. I hope it's signs of a bottoming, and I hope that nothing else happens in the near term that's going to set us back again, and that from now on we just get little bits of of better news, you know, to help us along. So I think that's what's driving markets. How long ahead? How far ahead do they look? They would look six months, you know, three to six months ahead. And I think that's what, that's what we're starting to build in. But you've got to be very careful. We'll go through this as we store, as we talk, because there's certain steps that one, that markets will see before they really start to build in a recovery. If you want me to go through what I think. We need to go through now, you know, yeah, with pleasure. I think that's important. Um, uh, just, just to uh, kind of lay the foundation, the all share index today is up two and a half percent. But if uh, you have a look at a graph of three to four months, it's still very, very yes, far from where I'm it was. I think the South African economy, we're in a different situation. And we've got to discuss that separately from what's happening in the rest of the world. Because I think in emerging markets, there's still a very deep concern that the strength of the economies, you know, are, are not the same as in developed countries and are not really, they don't really have the, the, the fighting room or the ammunition to fight back as, as strongly as some of the developed economies. So I think we'll look at both economies uh, differently. I think what we look for now, what's, what's going to turn markets is, is the kind of news we're getting now that uh, lockdown will end somewhere down the line. And in Europe, they're already starting to release plans of how and I don't know what the right word is, you know, of, of normalizing will take place. It's not going to say, okay, doors are opened, you know, everybody rush into the streets. It won't be like that. They've got to monitor it very carefully, and there's still a lot of things that have to be done. So I think that news is encouraging. The other thing is that you've got to believe that all these programs that have been released by the authorities, and I think they've done everything they can do, and they've been very inventive in this respect, that the money that they've released is getting into the system. And how will you know that? You'll start to see what we call spreads coming down. Spreads mean that the yields on bonds, you know, yields on corporate bonds, in other words, the yields that people are paying for money starts to come down. 
Mm. In other words, when you go into a bank, you're going to borrow at a lower rate than you did two or three weeks ago. That means the money's coming into the system. I, I don't know how much easier to explain it, but simply when we see cost of money coming down, that means that all these programs are starting to meet. Volatility as well, when we start to get comfortable with what's happening, we don't feel insecure when markets go up 1%, down 1%, and so on. We get used to the volatility and much more comfortable. And then um, I think those are the four the factors. But I think the main factor is to make sure that the programs that have been introduced by governments and around the world are starting to work and that the money is reaching those businesses that really desperately need it. And then we'll see it. So there are, th- there are those factors. In the formal economy, then, we, mm. we see the stock markets taking their lead pretty much from the United States. Morning, mm. JSC up nearly 3%. Uh, our futures are up more than 3%. And a similar thing in Europe, etc. You know, you said 1% moves. They seem to have been forgotten. <laughs> now 1% is a, is a very quiet day, isn't it? Exactly. You know, and, and historically, I mean, to see 4 or 5%, I mean, that's staggering in a day. And and even as I look now, the futures in, in other words, just pointing to the opening in, uh, in, in the U.S., which happens 3.30 hour time. It looks like that's going to be up three and a half percent today. Now that's, that's a big move. <laughs> that's a massive move. It gives you an idea of, of how we're going to see a turnaround in the US and that's spreading through to the rest of the world. I think Europe at the moment, I, I haven't quite checked. It was also up over three percent at one stage. I'm going to give you a reading now as we talk now. Um, Europe markets up 3.6 percent. The Euro stocks 50. So there is quite a big turnaround and I, you know, it's an encouraging sign. So, but, but, Let's not ring bells yet. (laughs) And that's the formal economy. That's the one that uh, and stock markets that looks six months ahead. Gigi, from your perspective, you keep a very close watch on the informal economy. And right there, it's it's what happens now at this point in time. And presumably, you wouldn't have a four percent lift uh, on that side of the market. No, not at all. I mean, I think that, well, if we, I mean, we have to kind of look at it differently. At this time last week, um, spazers and informal vegetable traders were being blocked from operating and, and, uh, luckily that's been released. So, you know, the spaza sector is now operating, um, with, uh, you know, and have to get permits, obviously, and same with the vegetable traders. But I think that's been very important because uh, people were literally having to take taxis into shopping centers and we saw a lot of, of it on the media, um, you know, these big queues and stuff. But So the spazers are operating apparently very quiet, um, generally about 50% of the trade that they would normally be getting, same with the kind of vegetable sellers. But the rest of the kind of informal economy is closed down, you know, that's the hair salons, that's the uh, food outlets, the water outlets, um, the entire spectrum. And, and even if you look at the taxi industry, the only industry that's um, operating is the local taxis, which are the ones within the townships. Uh, very little happening in terms of the taxis moving out of that. So literally overall, I mean, the whole informal sector outside of the spaza, broadly spaza and hawker sector is, is closed down. And um, I think the big issue is going to be how do they reinitiate and how do they start at the end of all of this? You know, Gigi, we ran a, I had a, a fascinating interview last night, uh, with Dr. Gonzalo, um, from the New York Institute of Technology. And they put together correlate, they correlate. What they did was they had a look, what are the infection rates and the death rates are like in countries that didn't have the TB vaccine called BCG and other countries that did have the vaccine. And it is stark. You're talking about hundreds of times more infections and deaths in countries that did not have the vaccine. And who are they? Netherlands, Spain, Italy, United States, the ones that that are in the news. And he gave an interesting example. He said that Italy and India got uh, COVID-19 at the same time, yet Italy's got 15,000 deaths and India had 32. So I'm just wondering, uh, we in South Africa have a universal uh, BCG vaccination. If you're seeing any influence of that uh, with the people that you're talking to, or are they saying that it's still going to hit us? Yeah, well, I mean, it's quite an interesting thing because 
I mean, if you look in the in, uh, broadly within the townships, you know, people are saying this isn't an issue and um, we're not worried about it, which which could be crazy. And um, there's, there's no, um, I guess, a widespread awareness. There's not like people who can say, I know someone who um, had coronavirus or has been infected or anything like that. Not currently. And you're talking in a community that's relatively close-knit and and well-connected. So I think, you know, it's, I mean, it's really hard to say, but one does wor- worry that um, you've done this whole uh, lockdown and, and uh, with a massive impact on both formal and, and particularly on the informal economy. And is it, uh, are we, are we, are we um, implementing a strategy that's relevant to a, a, a formal developed world and, and not thinking through it in South Africa. I mean, one of the issues is obviously, um, as we all know, you know, that pe- you can't really isolate people within an, an informal um, township mm. space. So, yeah, I, I mean, it's a difficult question. You don't want to be the government and be seen to have done nothing <laughs> and uh, and then suffer the consequences. And equally, you don't want to have overreacted or, or, or put in, in incorrect um, uh, kind of measures. Um, I think the the overall, I mean, it's hard to say whether that should have been done. I think overall, the big thing for me is that the whole country should be planning towards saying what happens the day after. And this is the big thing for, I think, for particularly the informal um, sector is how what happens the day after the lockdown ends and how are we prepared mm. for it. And, and that's what we should be looking at now, I think. Yeah, that's exactly what Europe's doing at the moment. Um, they're already releasing plans. And that, the good thing is to keep the communication going. So you release plans about how the, uh, call it the day after the lockdown, you know, operates. Um, because obviously you can't go back to full schooling and you've got to monitor people and you've got to monitor the businesses, um, that, that, that can open. But from South Africa, I don't think we could have been caught at a worse time. And from, from all fronts. Not only were we already starting to slow down, we were growing at snail's pace, but um, the lockdown has also decreased demand for commodities of which we're a big supplier. You know, whether whether it's vegetables or whether it's flowers, whether it's iron ore, whatever it is, uh, we've been caught on the wrong side of that as well. So there's every aspect that that's that's killing us. And actually, to lock down our economy from my point of view, is disastrous and there's got to be a way out of it. You know, we've got to start thinking in those kind of terms, but it's it's not that easy. But, I mean, to get the informal economy going, to get the formal economy going are absolutely imperative because otherwise we don't know where this is going to take us. I, I guess what we don't know is that we don't know what will happen if we have a widespread uh, infections of of COVID nineteen yeah. in South Africa. We do have seven seven point seven million people who are uh, HIV positive, and thus they have immunity issues. Yeah. And this virus goes in there and kills people who who uh, who have low yeah. immunity. So on the one hand, while we're seeing BCG and we've all been vaccinated against it, you know, it's that Dave. I don't know if you 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 still got one on your shoulder, but it's on your left yeah. shoulder. You know, it's that <laughs> I've got it. Yeah, it, it's that that round thing with like twenty <laughs> punch marks, <laughs> and we've all got it. it pretty much yeah, every uh, South African has one of those, mm. um, and it goes back incidentally to the 1940s when it was mm. introduced here. It was discovered in 1921, but from then. We all got it at least once, sometimes, mm, uh, mm, you know, a few times. Twice. Mm. Twice, maybe even three times. Mm. So there's that, uh, that seems to be giving protection mm. to people in India, uh, Japan. Mm. Um, uh, Dr. Gonzalo That's also uh, spoke about the, the, the difference between Japan and Italy as well, uh, and how Japan was a country which had exactly the same thing, and yet their infection rates and their death rates have been very low because they've got BCG vaccinations. Oh. He He's very quick to say, you can't extrapolate this. We've got to do clinical trials and, 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 and there are lots of oh. them now that are being done around the world. But if that were the case, then it's, it's going to be, <sighs> Gigi, on your side, it's going to be an issue because if guys in the township are saying, hang on a minute, no one's got sick or very few people have got sick and you've closed down our businesses – uh, for this, mm. there could be quite a quite a kickback, Gigi. Yeah, I think so, and and I think you know there's a lot of talk around the um, lockdown being extended, and and I really can't see how that would be possible because I think you will start getting 
serious social unrest, um, looting, and, and so on. Um, and 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 as you know, so I mean, it's all very well that people received their their salaries at the end of March and social grants were paid out at the end of March. But end of April, a lot of small businesses aren't going to be able to pay their staff, and the informal sector will have not generated any income over mm. April. And so, what happens then in in um, in May? So I think that. Um, there's a serious, serious risk of, of uh, people just flouting the regulations completely on a large scale. And I think that if they try to extend it, we will have um, people just flouting it, as we've seen in some cases. But, I mean, it hasn't really been the, – the flouting of regulations hasn't been on a massive scale. But when it reaches a certain point and every uh, every food outlet says, well, now Aswant or Shisenyama or whatever says, listen, forget it, I, I, I need to live they'll just start opening up and, and um, you know, how do you deal with a mass kind of social um, social resistance, I guess. So, uh, you know, my belief is that they seriously need to look at how to, it's not only about the day after, but about um, rather than going lockdown, maybe, and I know it's hard to execute, but maybe more along the Australian model, which is about very strict social distancing and, and other things without a total lockdown. I suppose the, the problem, Gigi, is that, if you're in Sora Ramaphosa's shoes, what do you do? You, you've done the lockdown early on. You've been tight. It does appear as though that's worked uh, because you can see that the growth in infections is relatively low in South Africa. And you're now rolling out masses of testing to make sure that uh, you, you aren't being given false messages and so on. But the public, the people, uh, might be viewing it differently, and you you made the uh, you, you almost a throwaway line when you said you worried about looting. Why so? Well, I, I think that um, I mean I, I, I completely sympathise with Cyril, and uh, you know what what do you do? But the point is is that you also at the same time have to do measures that take into account the realities of your society and your geographies on the ground, you know, and. Um, and part of it is that we we know that uh, businesses are within communities, so um, to, you know just closing down all forms of business, including you know uh, apart from the spas and hawkers, is kind of works in a in a city in a city environment where you have a CBD and you have separate residential and and business environment in the township environment. You know, you have the businesses in amongst the residential environment. So it becomes then easier for a, a person in a township to carry on trading and not have the same effect as, as having queues at a shopping mall or, or wherever it might be or to a restaurant and so on. And, and going back to the looting thing is that people in the township environment are accustomed to, in essence, I guess, lawlessness or, um, you know, less formality in terms of rules and regulations. So... I think that what we'll find is is that if if we carry on with this and and people don't have incomes and people start running out of money to buy food, the, they'll just uh, go and and start uh, helping themselves. And uh, you know you, you have to sympathise in some ways, and it's not the right thing to do. But what do you do if you're living in um, Kailicha or Namlazi or wherever it might be, and you actually have now got zero money? You normally would have had a little bit of money. Now you've got zero money. You can't operate your business. You're in a in a community that's relatively tight knit. So you gather around your buddies and and you go and help yourself. So, and and this will be the danger. There'll be two dangers in my mind. The one is that people will will start looting and helping themselves to whatever they may need. And on the other hand, you know, it's very much like service delivery protests. I mean, what are service delivery protests? It's the Government's not providing, so we start writing. If if um, there's this will be called food delivery protests um, on the one hand, and then the other hand, I think what will happen is people will just start carrying on with their daily lives and their daily businesses uh, the way they did before. I mean, and that will be another form of flouting regulation. So there'd be two sides of that, I think, if they extend too long, and and, and the one would be helping themselves, people helping themselves or looting or, or, or whatever you want to call it. And on the other hand, they would reinitiate their businesses and carry on operating, flouting the rules. Is the, the capacity of the defense force and the police force to actually enforce a longer lockdown? 
No. I mean, even if you look at um, well, the military in the Cape Flats with the gang stuff, I mean, they, they, weren't, you know, they weren't able to completely suppress it. And if you look at the townships now, um, yesterday as an example, there were a lot of people out and about in the streets in, in Soweto and Soshanguve and Amlazi. So, and, and I mean, I'm not even mentioning the rural areas. In the rural areas, everyone's carrying on like before, you know. And uh, how do you stop someone who walks to the river to fetch water from walking to the river to fetch water. So, you know, the, the, we, we really don't have the, the logistic capability to, to completely... Currently, the population is wanting to help and wanting to abide by the regulations. And, and that's why I say there's a certain point at which it's not going to be feasible to maintain this uh, when, when, when a broader section of the population starts saying that they want to or they're not prepared to, to abide by these so David, having listened to everything, uh, the, the, the practicalities uh, of what uh, is happening on the ground, there's no doubt that uh, President Cyril Ramaphosa knows all of this. Uh, he's not, he's not uh, living uh, in an ivory tower uh, as perhaps previous pre- presidents did. So what does he do? One of the problems, Alec, that we're faced with is that we have very few administrators globally that are prepared for this. You know, if you think of the politicians that have been put into power now, whether it's Trump, whether it's Cyril, they're not administrators. You know, I think they probably get bored whenever you talk about health issues or um, stories like that. I think uh, it's been, you know, those old, there's a certain element of a person who likes to do that, who likes organization. And I think what's been exposed in the U.S. is just how, ill-prepared someone like Trump is. What it also exposes is that we have no plan for any kind of situation like this, emergency-type situations, you know, whether it's feeding the uh, the poor, whether it's uh, taking care of them uh, medically, etc. We just don't have any kind of, of, of plan, and that's my big worry. And I'm quite emotional about this in a sense that I know that we need to get money to businesses to keep them ticking over. So all, I don't know how you do it in the informal sector. That's the, that's the problem. But even in the formal sector, you've got to get the money. And as a, as an exercise, uh, together with my son, we've been trying to get into the Rupert's funds and all different kinds of funds and say, we need money. The problem is that you have to fill out millions of forms. You've got to go through an extensive due diligence process to get the money to the businesses that need the money to keep paying their staff. You know, and that to me has become quite an issue with me. And I cynically put a tweet out. I said, you know, when there's a earthquake, you don't ask the rescue workers, you know, to fill out forms to go and dig your family out. They do it. And I think we need the same kind of approach. But I'm struggling with the informal sector to know, you know, how to do it, whether we do set up soup kitchen type places, you know, that prevents rioting or something like that. We've got the money. The Mm. private sector's got the money. You know, that's one thing we've got. The banks have got the money. Businesses have got the money. We just got to part with it in a way and, and not expect it to be paid back. Or if it is paid back somewhere down the line without any conditions. And that's, that's my deep concern is we've got to get money out there. I want to pick up on, on this point uh, and, and weld the two together, but go back first to Bill Gates, who in 2015, founder of Microsoft and who's dedicated his life now to uplifting other human beings. In fact, uh, most of the measures when they ask who's the most admired person in the world, Bill Gates comes out on top and not surprisingly. In 2015, he warned in a TED talk that this is going to happen. Almost exactly as what has occurred, he warned about it. And he was on the the TED program last week, and he said now he can see that the projection he made there that a pandemic of this nature would cost $4 trillion has actually come true. So there's no, it, it, it was almost like their estimates, they weren't sure of the $4 trillion, but they put the $4 trillion out there. It has come true. Now, if you look at South Africa, the the cost of mm. fighting this pandemic is going to be a lot of money. Or mm. you can allow what what uh, the scenario that Gigi has described, where people actually say it's not going to. Mm. You're going to have rioting. You're going to have revolting, and and that will cost a heck of a lot mm. more than mm. pumping some money into the mm. system. 
Yeah. So, I mean, that is, that's, that's, that's the whole point. But why didn't anybody listen to Bill Gates? Well, we don't do it. <laughs> that's we don't that's my point. Mm. You know, my point is that if anything has been exposed, I mean, to see the city of New York, and I keep going at this, I cannot grasp how a city like New York or how America has been caught completely off guard that they have to use the Jarwood Center, which is twice the size of any convention center that we have here. I mean, whether it's Santon or whether it's down in the Cape or any Durban, wherever it is, that they've converted that into a hospital. I mean, and that wasn't planned. There was no plan to do it. That was a last minute. Everybody's been grasping at the last minute. How do we do this? And I can't it just it's beyond me that no government globally has been prepared for this in any formal way. Now we're rushing, trying to get masks, rushing to get this. Nothing has been set up. And uh, I, I wish we could just leave politics to politicians, to those people who enjoy doing this kind of thing or are good at doing this thing instead of the populist nonsense that we hear. So I hope things change from now on. <laughs> Well, David, we're going to now link up with Bonang Mahale, who, as you well know, used to be the chairman of Shell and the former chief executive of Business Leadership South Africa. And Bonang, you issued a very unusual statement on the 3rd of April, giving huge support to Sizakele Mzimela in her new job as a chief executive of Transnet Freight Rail. Now, this is something I've never seen this before, um, somebody coming out with such a high profile as you have to support uh, someone else in the business community. Presumably, there was a very good reason for doing this, and presumably that means people were criticizing the appointment. Alec, you're absolutely correct. And right up front, let me answer the seat and proper uh, person question. You know, Ms. Cesar and Zimela's competency related to her duties and integrity, her experience, her qualifications, her commitment to continuous professional development, her operational ability and soundness, as well as her standing in both the business and broader community, renders her uniquely qualified. Impartiality and objectivity are character traits that she has consistently demonstrated in all interactions I've had with her. That's why I felt absolutely compelled to pen the letter and support her because Transnet ought to be congratulated on appointing her as head of its largest business unit, the Transnet Free Drain. I've no hesitation in saying that a better person could not have been found for this job. Alex? Mm, but why why is there so much criticism then of the support? I don't know. I think I think people are just lazy to research where she has been. You see, I've personally worked with Zinella, who has had hunted from financial services. When I was the first South African executive vice president of South African Airways and was consistently impressed by her uprightness abilities and capabilities, particularly her ability to understand and deal with complexities. Because of this, I have absolutely no hesitation in promoting her to successive senior management positions, both at SAA and South African Express Airways. I promoted to be a GM in SAA, and when South African Express Airways was needing a CEO, chaired by Lillian Boyle at that time, we had hunted her from SAA, and she did an embarrassingly good job. South African Express Airways was profitable. It was resilient. I am proud to say we worked together on, amongst many things, in developing the independent code share and commercial agreement. Rather than just going with uh, One World or Star Alliance, we chose to independently write each and every single solitary one of the culture and commercial agreements based on where we were flying. And it allowed us to fly to about 700 destinations. We also did the complex free hub strategy that profitably linked OR Tambo Airport with the airports in Accra in Ghana, in Nairobi in Kenya, and Lagos in Nigeria. A fundamental groundbreaking project which is still in place 
today as we speak, even though uh, FAA is still under business rescue. She excelled in everything that she was responsible for and beyond and was then promoted um, to, 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 to look after the current um, South African Express Airways when it was already looted, um, I, I think, beyond uh, any reasonableness. And she has actually left a profitable and resilient company. She then left the airline for a while and excelled so much in the private sector that we brought her back uh, to FAA as a CEO. She ran the airline effectively and efficiently after years of industrial scale looting, and it is no secret that she was only fired from FAA at the height of state capture project because she refused to buckle under pressure from the then president Jacob Zuma to award the only lucrative Dubai route to the Gupta. It is for this reason and many others that I say Miss Sigalem Zimela is the absolute epitome of ethical leadership in South Africa. On top of that, there can be no doubting that South African Express, where she was interim CEO, would have in fact imploded much earlier than it did had it not been for her wholesomeness, her skills, her commitment, her acumen, and indeed her integrity. So, Alex? So, Bonang, basically what you're saying is that she excelled, then she left, then she came back, but the SA Express was so far gone, there was nobody who was going to be able to do a Lazarus act on it. Absolutely. So any criticism of her ability to, to head transnet freight rail is therefore not only unwarranted, it is completely disingenuous and uninformed. The combination of her experience in the private sector, her entrepreneurship, and her experience in state-owned enterprises and companies is unchallenged, and only an ill-informed or malicious person would say she does not have the requisite skills and experience to run the transfer business unit that forms the backbone of the South African economy. So are you expecting, me, uh, sorry, good, sorry, are you yes. expecting then that she is going to show in the results in running a transnet uh, freight that she is actually up to the, not only up to the job, but uh, you expect that she'll excel there as well? Absolutely. You see, for me, Transnet is the backbone of our infrastructure. And moving goods efficiently is essential to anchor this economy for its next phase of industrialization. And she's absolutely experienced because leadership in general and logistics in particular is a forte. And critics who think that airlines are about only flying passengers rather than complex supply chain management, moving people and freight, etc., completely misunderstood the field she has excelled in. In my view, if you are a leader who profoundly understands probity and stewardship, the duty of care, skill, and diligence, but most importantly, the duty of faith, and you are of the caliber of missing Zimela, where your trademarks are integrity, wholesomeness, ethical leadership, you are more than eminently qualified to run not only TFR, but any business for that matter. David, uh, you've obviously heard the comments and the uh, the gossiping about Ms. Mzamela. What's your thought? Well, I, I, I can't really go against Benang's. I mean, he's very eloquent in, uh, in, in looking after, I mean, in endorsing her. And uh, I can't argue that. You know, I know very little about her her uh, um, achievements, but I mean, Bernang knows better than we do. And I think where he is right is that uh, this is the infrastructure. This is the backbone of infrastructure. If we can't, if we're mining stuff and can't get it to the harbors, or we can't get it to market, then we have no, uh, we have no economy. So it is an incredibly important segment uh, of the economy. But um, I, you know, <laughs> The gossip here is something which we have always had to handle in South Africa. And one of the problems is it's been so politically motivated and not business motivated. And I think the one thing about Banang is, is that he's been in business. He knows business. And, uh, you know, I, I'm going to go along with his endorsement. So he's what also, do we say? He's also the chairman of Bidvest, a company you know very well as oh, well. Very well. Well, Banang, thanks for joining us. And I'm sure that uh, Cesar Mzimele is, more than happy to have your endorsement. Let's see her uh, get Transnet Freight 
going again and uh, and let's see those big trucks coming off the road. I suppose that would be one of the first indications that she's doing her job right. Alec, I'm humbled beyond words and thank you for having me. <laughs> yeah, Bonang Mohale. Uh, he's, he's, just, uh, he's just a one of a kind, isn't he, David? Do, do you know? He's so eloquent, you know, I mean, and, and, and you can't argue against him. And he's got the background. He's got the... Uh, He's got her CV, and if she is that kind of person, well, then it's a, it's going to be a good, you know, good appointment. And Alec, we need it. I wish, you know, we need it. We need it in all aspects of, uh, of, of call it um, state-owned enterprises. We need those kind of people. Yeah, you need. So, to, well, being, being uh, an ex-farmer from Moy River, yeah. <laughs> yes. where the Moy River Toll Plaza oh, no. shows you. Uh, a, an indication of how the economy is going. But what happened there, because Transnet did such a bad job that yeah, the toll plaza yeah. was getting choked up with these big trucks yeah. that are driving yeah. between Johannesburg and yeah. Durban and as a consequence messing up the roads. And uh, clearly a lot of that freight should be going on rail. And I guess there might be a little bit of jealousy uh, if she yeah. is as, as good as Bonang says she is. Um, that, that you now got somebody really good in charge of this operation. Uh, guys, I'm going to play you a little clip now. Um, and I'd love you to listen quite carefully because a little while ago, we spoke with Gary and Andy Crunier. Now, these, this is the couple. They're South African teachers. They went to China, were teaching in China when COVID-19 hit there. They got caught in the lockdown. They, lost their ability to to earn a living. So after a while, they then, and we spoke to them a few times mm-hmm. on this program, after a while then they wanted to come back to South Africa. They eventually did. It was uh, quite a, a situation in doing so. And then at the airport, they were met by, as you'll hear from this clip, a man that they call their brother. It was their cousin. He's actually Gary's cousin. But he died on Friday night of COVID-19. So it's quite a story. Uh, just just listen. It's about a 10-minute clip, but it's it's well worth listening. And, and Gigi, I'd also like to get your insights on this one. We've done the full the full 360 of this COVID virus. Yeah, from being in China and unaffected to it hitting a very personal note back home. That's extraordinary. I, I'm yeah. getting your um, your WhatsApp today about Johan. Is he, so he's your cousin, Gary? Yes. Yes. Yes, he's my f- uh, first cousin. Yes, and uh, did you know him well? Yes, very well. He's he's actually he's more like a brother to both of us. Uh, he's he's older than both of us. Um, he's the kind of guy that if you ask him to do something, he'll do it with pleasure. He actually came to fetch us at the airport. airport. Yes. <laughs> so we felt we feel absolutely devastated, awful, you know. because. You know, everybody will will blame pointing us, fingers pointing at fingers at us. But a lot of medical people, our friends in Beijing and in South Africa, said to us, if we were the carriers and we had it, my parents, that's also elderly and on retirement, would have been sick long ago. And now everybody's question is, where did he get it? And there's just no way we, we can know. There's just no way we can know. Look, he he did travel around the country quite a bit. Yes. He is the main technician that used to fix and um, sort out all ATMs, you know, if they broke down or there was problems. He was the guy. The company sent him to Dubai to go and do study. You know, he was really an intelligent man, a gentle giant, and then it's just ripped out of the family, and that was bad. ATMs, you, you kind of, uh, I'm, I'm just thinking in my head here, people press buttons on ATMs, don't yes. they? Yes. And they would, yes. they could possibly leave, yo, that's got to be one of the highest risk areas, almost like handling money. It mm. is. Yes. Um, the day he got, the day he fetched us, in fact, he took us from the airport to my in-laws and then he had to leave to go to Polokwane. Yes. So. All in a day's work. Hmm. And at that stage, had we been in a lockdown yet? No. no. We we got back on – we arrived in South Africa on the morning of the 9th, and that's when he fetched us from the airport. He uh, he got there earlier, 
And uh, when we phoned him to say that we had arrived, he was ha- he said he was having a breakfast and a coffee at one of the uh, cafes at the airport. And then he came down to fetch us. When we when we saw him, because we had just climbed off a plane uh, full of uh, people from China, we gave him a mask to put on um, just in case. Uh, and then, as you know, we did come, we, we came home and we self-quarantined. Yes. So the the I guess if you, he was off to Polokwane, who knows uh, what who he may have come in contact with? Is is there any attempt being made to to track the people that he engaged with? Well, the the hospital phoned us um, where he was. They phoned us just to get our address, our phone numbers, everything. And but since then, I heard nothing. I phoned the hospital several times and say, listen, why don't we get tested to see if we're not carriers? Maybe we are positive and not. You know, not um, asymptomatic. Asymptomatic, and if we go out into the field, maybe somebody else's life was at risk. They said no. If you don't show any symptoms, we won't test you. And we did phone the the national hotline as well, and they asked us our timeline. They asked us who do we live with, and we've been home now for twenty twenty five days. Yeah. Uh, we last saw Johan 20 days ago. He quickly popped in here uh, with Cynthia, his wife, to um, come and just say hi. And we they had a small barbecue, my mother and father-in-law. We were still keeping ourselves to one side. Um, Cynthia is also, uh, she's she is showing symptoms, but very mild symptoms. Mild. She's positive. But what is a miracle is her mother... Uh, well, uh, Johan Forster's mother-in-law and Cynthia's mother, she's 81 and she tested negative. And they live together. And they live in the same house. So that's very thankful. Very, yeah. very thankful for that. But yes. 20, 20 days ago when he came to visit you, presumably mm. he was healthy. He's fit. He yes. was fine. Uh, he started showing, he started feeling a little sick. Um, I think it was more than two weeks ago. He went to the doctor. The doctor did test him. But they were very delayed in getting his test results. In fact, from what I heard from his wife, is they actually lost his test results. Um, and then they found them and said, no, it was negative. But he stayed at home and just got progressively sicker with a very high temperature. His brother uh, took him to the hospital, of which he was uh, in ICU for a good couple of days. And he started showing a lot of improvements. He started sitting up. He started eating. Uh, and he was looking to come home. They thought he would come home on the 10th. And uh, last night at 6 o'clock, about 6 o'clock, um, they phoned Cynthia to say he's really, really bad. They're going to have to put him on a ventilator. And then 20, past, 20 to 10 last night, um, he, he passed away. He passed away. You guys have been have been very close to this uh, this COVID nineteen from your time in China, the people you know there. Uh, to to the, is it typical what happened with Johan? Uh, yes. In other words, the passing. Yes. What will happen? It usually the the symptoms will show after about four days. Then you will start getting coughs, or temperature, or body aches and pains with the the cough, the irritating cough. And then they will do tests, and that's where the whole process starts. But by this time, the virus is so far spread in your body. Yes. You've already infected as much people because come in contact with. The, the demon in the virus that they described it to us is before you show symptoms, it is highly contagious. And then only you show symptoms. Yes. So back to the reason to be tested. So we phoned we phoned the, the National Call Center and they said, no, my mom-in-law and my father-in-law are not sick. And uh, the my stepfather, the other person I've come in contact with, is also not sick. We're not showing any symptoms, so we don't qualify to be tested. So and I think that is a bit... It's, it's, it's heart-wrenching in the, in the respect of we feel so guilty. Uh, look, we know we're not... There was hundreds of other people that came into the, the country on the same day as we did. Um, the government, as you know, announced anybody who came in after the night had to present themselves for testing. We had to fill out 
tons of paperwork to say where we were living, our contact numbers, both from China and in South Africa. So if anybody on our flight was ill or has fallen ill, um, customs would have contacted us by now. Mm. So the assumption is no one on our flight was ill um, because of the stringent health checks. I just think on the health side of it, it's irresponsible from the government not to want to test us. Mm. So if we are carriers um, and we asymptomatic, we go out in public, there's a lot of people yeah. at risk. But like they said, it's it's almost impossible for all three of us to be carriers and my mother and father-in-law to not have been affected. Yes. Yeah, that's my question. Surely, and I remember last time we spoke, you said that you uh, you did get sick. Um, we did, uh, yes, in China. Um, yes. In, in, in China, but, but it, surely once you've got sick, you don't carry the virus anymore, or do I'm, you? It's, I'm... I That's suppose, what we don't know. look, they, from what I've read up, and I've done a lot of research, is as soon as, uh, as soon as you have recovered, your body does produce obviously some sort of antibody. There have been a few cases of reinfection where they prob, where they have now thought that maybe they thought they had finished treating it, but they didn't. But that reinfection happened maybe a week or two weeks after. So it's impossible. We were sick in early January. So it's April now. So I, I doubt that we would have been walking around all this time in perfectly good health. Yes. And not have affected would, other people. It would be good to get a test and then you could possibly find out yes. you're able to, to go through it. Just, just, there's some very interesting research. We're going to pressure it. <laughs> okay. There's a very interesting research that's coming out now from the Institute, the New York Institute of Technology, which is a, a very highly reputable uh, university. Where they are showing, they've done um, they've done analysis of countries where babies get a BCG vaccination, uh, in other words, a TB vaccination yes. at birth. South Africa, thankfully, yes. has been getting this since the 1920s. The United States stopped it. Yes. They don't have it in the United oh, States wow. or Italy wow. or Spain. And now we know yeah. United States, Italy, and Spain it's are the highest. Are yes. the highest. Now, I was just wondering about Johan. Was he born in this country? Would he have presumably yes. had this? Yes. yes. The uh, Gary's uh, grandmother and his mother are sisters. Uh, they all grew up in the same street. Everyone. It was like one of those big, happy families. In They grew up in Sophia Town. Mm-hmm. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so they... Um, so everyone did, you know, he, you could see he has his same mark as all the South Africans yeah. <laughs> of that era. Yeah. We all have the mark on our arm. So, so yes, he did. So that doesn't, um, that, he, that doesn't really support that theory. Mm. No, not at all. No, but he was, look, as far as everyone knew, he was a very healthy man, apart from being a normal South African man and having a couple of drinks. He exercised regularly. He, um, yes, he, didn't, he was, smoke, he didn't smoke. Wasn't ill. Kickboxing, boxing. You know, he loved that. Type of he stuff. was the fighter out of all of us. Yes, and uh, it was. And today, um, two months ago, he turned fifty. That's a bit scary, isn't it, David? Two months ago, sure. he turned fifty, and sure. uh, in, know, in it, great, it, great health, and away he goes. I know. I, the question we were going to ask is, you know, did he have any? Um, was he vulnerable? in the sense of having weaker lungs or a weaker immune system. We don't know. But the way that it just grabs people is, is just so scary. You know, when, when you listen to that story, this is a real horror story. And, and, and you know, listening to what Gigi said about the uh, informal sector and the way that people walk, you just don't know what, where it's going to hit you. You know, you don't know how to protect yourself in, in, in a sense. It's a... It's, uh, this is a real story, and it's a very, very worrying. And 50-year-old to go, if he was 80 or somewhere like that who was, who was physically weak, one could understand. But sure. Gigi, I don't know. Yeah. I, I, it scared the hell out of me. <laughs> Gigi, it's, it's, uh, it's quite sobering, isn't it? Yeah, well, it is. I mean, particularly, you know, in light of the, the you know, what we were saying earlier about people saying it's not a problem for them and they, it's a non-issue, you know, and then you kind of say, well, actually it is a major issue and, and people are ignoring it. So, um, and, and, uh, 
you know, everyone's questions are, you know, did someone smoke and did someone, you know, are, were they old? Um, the problem in the townships, as everyone would know, is, is lower immunity, higher HIV, et cetera, et cetera. TB is still a big issue in the township environment. So, yeah, it, it is very worrying. So having heard that and our conversation earlier as we wrap up the show today, what's, what's your thought? I mean, do you have any flashes of brilliance, suggestions that – that uh, will help South Africa get oh, out of this? I, I, I wish I was qualified to answer that. I, you know, when I say uh, the big worry is that you're measuring this up against a, a failing economy, but you can't, you can't just brush it aside. You know, we've got to keep social distances. We've got to be aware of it. And we've got to do, we've got to do it, you know, or treat it as best as we can or, or respect it as best as we can. I... I um, I know that we are just living in a household with uh, with Linda. You know, she's extremely conscious of it. My family in Australia and New York are extremely conscious, and I think they've got to continue uh, to act that way until un- until it vanishes or until it's uh, uh, really overcome. I don't think we can be complacent. Yeah, look, I think you know a lot has been said around the fact that this ushers in a whole new economic system where we uh, work more remotely and and so on. Um, you know, I think from the informal sector perspective, one of the strengths um, and there's many negatives, but one of the strengths is the fact that you've got a multitude of small businesses, fragmented, locally based, home based, or or street based businesses. And and to an extent, I think that the economies are going to, you know, along the lines of the Ubers and the Airbnbs of the world, is that these economies are going to um, move to these smaller home-based businesses. And uh, if there's a, if there's any hope, it's that the informal sector is able to capitalise on this new form of business uh, that is street-based, home-based, low overheads, and 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 so on. And uh, and maybe more resilient because of that versus a large, you know, Edgars or, or other, for, you know, kind of corporate business with huge overheads and, and all that goes with it. Yeah, the formal sector, David, is the one that looks like it's, yeah. it's in the crosshairs here. Uh, yeah, it does. I, I think that's, that, that's the big worry. And uh, when we think about mining as well, I don't think we can continue to hold off too long. Somewhere down the line within the next week or two or three You've got to start mining again. You know, you can't stop that. So there's there's some very difficult decisions from, from you know from from government, and I, I you know I, I, whatever they do is probably going to be the wrong decision. But uh, uh, sadly. <laughs> Who'd want to be taking those decisions today? It's a complex, complex world, but it is a world that is changing. This has been Rational Radio. I'm Alec Hogg. Until the next time, cheerio.